you gotta handle the rock with flair and rhythm if you wanna be judged on wood brain and concrete courts in New York. This ain't no nickel and dime. It's dribbling dimes where scoring never looked this good. I guarantee it. But was your reputation built from the playground up? Or did you call next when they took that ish? Or cause you weren't as fast as police and ambulance sirens? Or as loud as Mr. Softy ice cream? No. You see, this is New York City hoops in prime time. As beautiful as the skyline, it's dribbling dimes. This Astoria Queens native grew up playing all sorts of sports up and down his block. Self-admittedly, he wasn't the best basketball player, but his defensive prowess got him court time at his neighborhood boys and girls club. He attended Rice High School, and though he tried out annually, he never made the hoops team. He spent years working with the youth, giving them opportunities to engage in basketball and utilize it as a tool to further themselves through vehicles like the Public School Athletic League and his Game Plan for Success workshops. When sports marketing guru and founder of ABCD Camp, Sonny Vaccaro, was looking for an East Coast camp head, our guest was the guy. Through ABCD Camp, he was able to help in the development of the nation's brightest stars, Tracy McGrady, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, Tim Duncan, Jason Kidd, and many more. On this episode of Dribble and Dimes, we kick it with basketball historian, educator, and youth advocate, Mr. Rich Kosick. What's up, everybody? This is Manny Digital, and I'm joined by, uh, I'm going to call him a basketball historian, but uh, he's had run-ins all throughout the city of New York with respect to basketball. A large part, I know, has been through the PSAL, but we're going to learn a lot about this gentleman here, Mr. Rich Kosick. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much for making the drive all the way over here. Well, Manny, I really appreciate the invitation and uh, look forward to having a good conversation with you. Perfect. We typically like to start in understanding where the guests kind of fell into basketball, right? A lot of the people that come on the show have been athletes, so they start, you know, 8 to 12 years of age where they got introduced to the game. I'd love to understand kind of how you made it into, you know, having a relationship with basketball. Well, uh, I grew up in the 50s and early 60s in Astoria, Queens. Mm-hmm. For basketball people, uh, they would know that it's very close to Queensbridge Projects, Monte Cristi High School, St. John's Prep, Long Island City, Bryant High School. But growing up at that time, we were out on the street from practically dawn to past sunset, but we were playing stickball, punchball, slap ball. And my particular block, we didn't have many parks close to us. Mm -hmm. So uh, a boys club opened up when I was probably about 10 years old in in, uh, Long Island City. So I started going down to the boys club, and the big thing there was was, uh, basketball, softball, baseball. So I kind of played everything. I was not a very good basketball player. (laughs) I played hard. Uh, I was a good defender. They always would put me... on their other team's best player. But see, so, back, in, back in that day, I'd say up until you know, maybe 20 years ago, that mattered, right? You, like yes. a Dennis Rodman, for instance, <laughs> right? Like his thing was rebounding. You could do that with one skill and still play. You, you that could, mattered. You, you, you could say that. Right. <laughs> so 
Uh, but I, I got I got proficient enough to where uh, I made the uh, uh, and my one claim to fame. I made the 14 and under travel team for the boys club where we went around to different boys club. Mm -hmm. And one of my teammates was uh, Lloyd Sunny Dove. I don't know played who that at, is. Okay, but Lloyd. Well, Lloyd Lloyd was a, uh, a great player at uh, uh, St. Francis. Uh, prep high school okay. went on to be a scholarship player at St. John's mm. and then uh, had a short career in the NBA uh, Lloyd Sonny Dove uh, about about six nine uh, lanky guy hmm. uh, was, was he from your neighborhood no actually I believe Lloyd uh, no he was he, he was from the Astoria projects okay so okay. probably about a half a mile from where I, I lived I grew up in a in a six family uh, walk-up apartment uh, off of 21st Avenue, okay. and uh, Astoria Projects were around 27th Avenue. But uh, Lloyd tragically uh, got killed in an auto accident uh, years later. Damn. He was driving a cab, and uh, it went off an open drawbridge in Brooklyn. Wow. But a great guy, but Lloyd was one of my teammates. Nice. Um, anyway, I, I ended up going to Rice High School. Tell me that, because uh, again, you're a Queens guy. All right. Well, uh, keep it. Keep. <laughs> I wasn't a great student. All right. All right. And at that time, they, were just, they had the citywide test, mm -hmm. and I did get into Rice. So I went to Rice, and I always say that I was a misguided student athlete when I look back at my life, because <laughs> my best sports were baseball and football. Yep. I'll go to Rice, and they've got swimming. They've got great, great track. They've got really good basketball. There was no baseball team. There was no football team. Mm -hmm. All right, so I still played CYO, YMCA, PAL, uh, baseball uh, throughout my high school career. I played Sandlot football uh, with the high school and college guys. And uh, basketball was tried out for the team every year, but never made the team at Rice. Hmm. But became a fan. But I think my real interest came when I was at the boys club. My father happened to be a coach, uh, was a volunteer coach and uh, for the older guys. And I kind of became like the mascot at like 10, 11, 12 years old with the high school guys. Okay. Some really, really good players. Uh, players out of Astoria Projects, uh, Sammy Switzer, Freddie Ware, uh, Jim Bates. Just really, really good player. A guy named Bobby LaRosa was a great baseball pitcher and a good point guard. Mm. So that was the, the team out of the boys club. And uh, years later, as I would see some of these guys, they would, some of them had scholarships to college, but they'd always hear, well, no, he dropped out or he didn't make it. Uh, Bobby LaRosa stayed with baseball. He had a scholarship. But uh, some of these other guys, they just were, they were back on the street. Mm. So it was in the back of my mind. Uh, I graduated from Rice in 1964. At the time, Dean Memminger mm -hmm. was a freshman at Rice and uh, played. They won the freshman or the JV. He was on the JV. They won the your, JV. Your senior year was his freshman year. Yeah, and he was a, on the JV. They won the city championship, and they actually moved him up to the, yeah. the playoffs for, for to the varsity. But uh, our biggest competition during my uh, uh, time at Rice was Power Memorial mm -hmm. with uh, Lou Alcinda, who right. be became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and uh, it was you know it was and we never beat them. <laughs> he was Kareem was Kareem. 
Was so I'm assuming you did witness some of those games. Oh yeah, yeah. How? Because I mean, to find footage of that kind of stuff is very rare, if at all. I don't even. I've never seen any. Well, I probably saw Lou play six to eight times during that time because I I went to some power games when they were playing other people outside just one because everybody wanted to see him play. But the thing I remember is Rice High School was on 124th Street and Lenox Avenue. It was about a seven-story building. They had a small swimming pool in the basement, uh, and on the, about the seventh floor, they had one of the smallest gyms in the city. Mm. Shoebox. It had a little balcony at one end where you could look down on the court because there were no seats mm-hmm. on, either, on, on the sideline or at the end. Right. And Jabbar, or Alcinda, we would count how many strides it took him to go from one basket to the other basket. And I'm not exaggerating now. Okay. I, I think it might have reached six. Wow. Because in six strides, he went from one basket from to the to other. End. You know, and then just picture the balcony is where the backboard is, mm-hmm. and you're looking down. Right. So we had a lot of close-ups. He was high-fiving you guys yeah, pretty if, much. If there was... If there was uh, Cell phones then with the there would have been some great pictures, but uh, he was he was something to see. So he was a box office guy. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 In fact, Mm. I think it was my senior year, uh, which would have been his junior year. uh, We made it to the semifinals, Mm. and they played out at St. John's. St. John's had just opened up their new well, it's Conesecco Arena now, now. the time Alumni Hall, and. they played out there. They had beaten us in the quarterfinals, and I went out there with a group of people, and he, they, he packed the place. Hmm. The place was packed, you know, to see him. So that was great basketball. Uh, at the time, I was the first one in my family to go to college, and I got, for some crazy reason, I, well, Maybe I couldn't get into those schools. I couldn't get into schools in New York. But anyway, I went out to a small Catholic college in Kansas called St. Mary of the Plains okay. in Dodge wow. City, Kansas. How, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, no family, nothing out there. Remember I said I was a misguided yeah. student athlete? Yep. All right. Because uh, you're, you're a New York born and bred guy. Yes, Kansas yeah. is a far cry from but, anything. But listen, growing up, I was... You know, you misguided. Play, you play, yeah, misguided. <laughs> you you played cowboys and Indians. Uh-huh. I was a, a big Western guy. Yep. All right. So I loved Western movies, uh, John Wayne, uh, all that stuff. And anyway, I saw my guidance counselor one time at Rice High School because I was thinking about being a policeman or mm-hmm. taking a, a test for a city job. But my mother was after go to college, go to college. And I said, okay. So I applied for four schools, St. Leo's in St. Augustine, Florida, Mm -hmm. which went on to fame uh, because they would get beat by Georgetown every year when Patrick Ewing was there. And they'd play a Division II school to give the school some money and get the team ready for the the season. Uh, I didn't go there because I used to get bad sunburns. And I said, oh, I really can't go there. Okay. All right. And then there was a school in Santa Fe, New Mexico, called St. Michael's uh, uh, High School, also called New Mexico Highlands. And that was too far okay. because you had to take, like, three planes. 
and I had never flown at that time. Uh, it's 1960. I'm getting out of high school in 64. In, uh, in 64. Uh, so I had never flown and didn't go there. And then there was one school in, in I think it was St. Mary's in Maryland, uh, which sounded really good, but I couldn't get in there because my academics okay. weren't great. St. <laughs> Mary's took me. All right. Uh, they, they accepted me. I got a letter and I said, looks like I'm going to college. <laughs> Anyway, I went out there, and, uh, and I went out by train the first time. I was nervous about flying. So Chicago, train to Dart City, and I stayed there for four years, came wow. close to transferring. The best thing is I met some of the greatest people, lifelong friends who I'm still in contact with. And strange, strange as it may seem, there was a lot of Easterners there. There was a, a core of guys from New Jersey who, really? play, who played football uh, and then there were guys from Brooklyn and it turns out you know people recognize one of the legendary Catholic coaches Catholic high school coaches in, in New York two guys uh, Tom Murray from Cardinal Hayes High School yep. he had just graduated Get out all of right here. and then Don Kent the longtime uh, coach at McClancy High School okay won a city championship with McClancy uh, Tom won uh, city championship with Jamal Mash Mashburn. Uh, they had uh, Don Kent was there for two years while I was there, and a whole bunch of other guys. Somehow, what, what was how how did that I, happen? There was somebody went there. Uh, oh, I just pulled everybody. Also, this is the funny thing: the uh, Catholics in New York know that there's a Catholic newspaper, and I think it's mostly in Brooklyn and Queens. The Tablet. Mm -hmm. All right. Do you have that in the Bronx? The Tablet. I haven't seen okay. it. Okay. Not my time. And it's, well, the tablet every year had an all-American team in football and basketball. And being a fan, I would read it. And it every like the sports every, section of, of yeah, the tablet. Yeah. And every, but every year on this all-American right. team, you'd see a guy from St. Mary of the Plains. Huh. Uh, I can't think of the running back's name. Tony something, an Italian guy from uh, Jersey, and then a, a, a big, big tough Irishman from uh, uh, Hudson County. His name was Ed Hudson. <laughs> all right. They were all Americans. And then there was all Americans uh, basketball players, a guy named Ed Govan from New Jersey who went on to play in the ABA. Hmm. All right. 6'11 guy. And then a guy, Bill Hicks from Cleveland, Ohio, uh, led the nation in scoring in NAIA schools while I was there. So I went out there. And that's funny. I got <laughs> along with people and became a big supporter of the teams. Is that school uh, still alive and kicking today? Or? No. Okay. It's, it's very briefly, if you look up the New York Times in St. Mary of the Plains, they were the victim of the largest fraud, fraud case with student loans in the history of the United States. Wow. It happened in the late 80s or early 90s. Uh, it's too long a story, but just just say they they got hooked up with the fraudulent group. Uh, that wasn't like around the savings and loan scandal era. After no, after. no. Okay. Anyway, this group got hold of their student loan ID number and took out student to loans town. to the tune of eighty four million dollars. So the federal government came in and took over the school. Wow. All right, and sold it and. 
that's that's the end of that story. Damn. But out of that school, you had Tom Murray, you had Don Kent, you had uh, uh, a guy by the name of Al Paterzo, who went on to be a legendary coach on Staten Island in the New York City Public School Athletic League, won multiple football championships. And if you looked at New Jersey, a score of guys who were very successful coaches. And I'm still in touch with a lot of them, and uh, it was it was a good place. It was a, you know, so it worked taught out. me a lot. Did, did the misguidedness subside when you went out there? Uh, well, not really. <clears throat> I, I actually, actually, I I I made the football team uh, my sophomore year, but I got hurt, hmm. and uh, the coach at that time was a new guy, and he didn't believe in injuries. <laughs> All right. But when my ankle was three times the size of the other ankle and I couldn't stand up, you know, on it. Right. And he still wanted me to practice. It was time to hang it up. Wow. So I played intramurals for uh, three years after that and uh, cheered for the football team. Mm. But the thing that uh, got me going was I mentioned before about finding out about the guys from the boys club who didn't make it. And then I think it was my junior year, I started working with the Board of Ed during the summer with what was called vacation day camps. Mm -hmm. And it turned out my first vacation day camp was at PS 111 in Long Island City, Queens. Uh, right next to a couple blocks on the Queensbridge housing projects. Yep which if basketball people will know was that it was a hotbed, hotbed yep. of, of uh, a great, great talent. Uh, and I got to see guys coming up out of that projects during the summer. And then when I graduated from St. Mary's in 68, I started teaching and I started working in the Knight Center. Okay. So I got to know more basketball in players. In that same area? Yeah, PS 111. I was in the Knight Center. <clears throat> So then you had guys from Long Island City, from Power Memorial, from Holy Cross High School, Marta Christie. Uh, Malloy? You know, uh, no, Malloy with the kids. The kids didn't come, uh, you know, a too, little too far. And uh, I saw games at night in that, in that night center, which you could have paid, you know, people, people would have paid to see. Just great players. Any, any one stick out more than any of the others? Uh, well, Larry Petty was a 6'10 kid that played at Power, that went on to play at Wisconsin. And he played in the NBA for, I think, uh, two years and then played overseas. Uh, later on, you had Tony Red Bruin, who went on to Syracuse, mm -hmm. uh, played at Syracuse. Uh, Vern Fleming played at Marta Christie and went on to uh, Georgia and then was on the Olympic team uh, in 84. And then they, uh, uh, I think he had a 14 or 15 year NBA career, mm -hmm. most, yeah. mostly with the uh, Indiana Pacers. And then, oh man, other, other guys. Skip Jackson, point guard out, out of Long Island City, a uh, great player. Uh, but there were players who had scholarships, who went off to school. I'm working in Knight Center during the school year, yep. all right, from you know, 7 to 10 o'clock, and all of a sudden it's November, December, and guys are showing up. All too often. Home, like they're home. Like you're a basketball player and it's November and December. 
why are you home? Mm -hmm. And then you'd find out they couldn't handle it. You know, the, the social life, uh, the academics. So that was going on in my head, like, like what happened? Like, what do you mean? You didn't like it, or I wasn't ready for it, or, or there'd yeah, be chance of a lifetime, or I didn't get along with the coach, or what, whatever. And it bothered me. And then I started looking into th things a little more. And at the time, I decided to become a guidance counselor. I was a uh, uh, started out in a, in a uh, junior high school on the Lower East Side. And then uh, I moved on from there. And, and was your rationale or your decision to become a guidance counselor based on what you were seeing happening with the athletes? Yeah, I, I said, you know, let me, like, who talks to these kids? Like, okay. I, I know as a teacher you have a great deal of influence on the, on the kids that you work with, boys and girls. Right. But I was looking beyond that, all right? Uh, yeah, you were like, something's not... Because my real love was sports, right. all right? I mean... Uh, my biggest success was, was winning multiple championships. My senior year in high school, we won the, uh, the citywide uh, CYO championship, the Diocese of Brooklyn, Queens. We were the best high school-aged group at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, I was on another team with some of the same players. We won the PAL City Championship, mm. and, and we uh, won the uh, uh, YMCA, Brooklyn, Queens Championship. So that was the was height. That all one year? Yes. The wow. summer of the su actually was the summer of 64, wow. the summer I graduated. Wow. And, and uh, a couple guys went on to play uh, minor league ball, you know, because uh, we had players on a team from Long Island City High School had good baseball players too. Mm -hmm. A great first baseman named Harry Bridgewood uh, went on to, I think he got drafted by Cincinnati. And then we had a, a pitcher uh, pitched with us, Mike Diegas. Uh, Looked like he was going to be a, a pro, but he blew his arm out. Ah, okay. Ended up playing at Long Island University, I think. Hmm. But uh, there was some really summer. good. There was some really good players. Anyway, uh, the sports was there. Um, I coached a little bit with uh, junior high school, just really uh, nothing big. Right, right. Just playing against different junior high schools, and uh, I started to follow the kids that I met at the Knight Center to their high schools. I would go to their high school games, whether it was Long Island City or Marta Christie. But I had, a, I had a, an affinity for Marta Christie because Marta Christie was two blocks from where I grew up and I was still living. I was still living with my parents yep. right after college. You know, uh, people are going to laugh at this, but it's true. In 1968, a New York City beginning teacher, your salary was $6,800. For the year, <laughs> people look at me like I'm not lying. How, how that, how, but the, the subway was ten cents. Right, I was going to say so. Yeah. Sixty-eight hundred yeah. in today's world is laughable. Yeah. But relative to cost of living, was it as bad? Would you say as it is today for teachers? Uh, Relatively. No, I think teachers today have a little. I mean, starting teacher, I think in New York City is is in the forties, fifties. I think it's in the fifties now. Okay. You know, for a public school, right. public school teacher. Now, uh, I I was at home until I was 24. So I got out of college in so for two years. I was got out of college in 20 when I was 22. Uh, 
I got my first apartment when I was 24. Mm. My first rent for a nice one-bedroom apartment in, in Jackson Heights, Queens. Let me guess. Let me guess. 250 No, man. That's more? No. Oh, okay. No, it was ridiculous. It was like 190 <laughs> You know, it was like... I, I can handle this, and my salary had by that, by that time two years later my salary was close to ten. Okay. Because there was big teacher strikes. The yeah. UFT got a good contract, but one of the things I was happiest about when I started working at PS One Eleven uh, after my sophomore year of college, and I started to meet all these great young kids and and different uh, people. Uh, I was th the salary for that job was around $11 an hour. Mm -hmm. And that was really That's good the money. money then. Yeah. That was good money. Because the minimum wage was like $1.50. Wow. I was making $11 an hour, working 36, 36 to 40 hours. Actually, let me get that straight. About, probably about 34 hours, five days a week during the summer. I was like, oh, man, this is, this is good. You went out and you bought yourself a fancy car? No, no, I, no I didn't do that. <laughs> I didn't do that. Uh, but... Uh, then a great thing happened. The, the year I graduated from college, they had a big teacher's strike. But the teachers said, we want those summer jobs only to be given to teachers. Mm -hmm. Okay? So actually it might have been the, my junior year. Only teachers can have that job. And if they, they're going to be teachers having those jobs, we want them paid. So all of a sudden the pay went from like, Eleven dollars an hour to fourteen. Damn! I was making as much money as construction worker. Wow! So I was like, man, I was. And you got home <laughs> this clean every day. You weren't all yeah. beat up from construction. Well, I was. I was sweaty from right, running right. around with the kids. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know that that was nice. But uh, I saw these things happening with the kids. Uh, it bothered me. I said, I, I got to look into this. Like, what's going on? And. Uh, I enrolled in the, I got into the master's program for guidance and counseling at Hunter College. Mm -hmm. And the man who really set me on the right path, uh, and, and uh, your audience will recognize this because he's a legendary guy, it was a man by the name of Dr. Roscoe C. Brown, all right, had been the president of Bronx Community College high up, and he, he was... Uh, he was a Tuskegee Airman oh, wow. during World War II, a pilot, yep. all right, uh, medal winner, a, a classy guy, all right? And he wrote a couple articles about the, the black student athlete. Mm -hmm. And he came to Hunter College one day and gave a talk to uh, a group of, uh, you know, the graduate students in the program. And it blew me away because he... he conceptualized everything I had been thinking about. My thoughts were all over the place. He had it all structured he and organized. He brought it in. Like, what's going on with these young men? All right, because it was mostly young, black young men from the inner city mm -hmm. who were these great athletes who were, he was saying they were being used. Right. They would play college ball, but they would get into uh, half-assed classes that weren't leading to a degree. Uh but be eligible, be able to play, and then uh, when your eligibility is up, you got a lot of credits, but you don't have a degree. Mm. So that was part of it. And he kind of just inspired me. I says, well, I've got to 
get the word out that this has to be, you know, the, the kids need more information. Right. You know, that old saying of uh, knowledge is power. Right. And that was my whole thing. I wanted to try and empower kids, but I wanted to empower their parents. And equally important, I wanted to empower the community coaches. Mm -hmm. to, uh, I mean, one man can make a difference. Yep. But when you share your information with many others and they turn it into action, then the information got turned into, into knowledge and power. Right. So that's what I've been about. So wait, you that know? one conversation. Uh, one speech. Yeah, one talk he gave. Mr. Brown comes in. Yeah. Gives that one talk that lit the fuse under you to say. Yeah, I, I mean, I was, action. I was gearing that you were yeah. in that direction anyway. Yeah, I mean, I had the, I had ideas, right? But I, you know, how succinctly he put it, yeah, gave yeah. you the opportunity to, yeah, make make it make sense for you. And then, and he was said, what interesting, he was saying that the colleges weren't doing enough. I mean, you could argue that's you still know, happening. And that that I'll get on that a little bit more to the NCAA. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to, to me, is has, has been a, uh, a, a co-conspirator. Absolutely. You know, in, in allowing in allowing things to happen. Right. All right? Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'll say this. No, one. This, we but, can go everywhere and anywhere. Right. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Think of this. Where do, where do young men and women go uh, to become teachers? School, college. College. They yeah. go to college. Where do young men... Or women go to want to be a coach, to be a guidance counselor. They are at universities and colleges all over the United States. Mm -hmm. The National Collegiate Athletic Association has three levels: Division One, the best athletes go to Division One; Division Two, good athletes; Division Three, it's kind of so a mixed so. mosh. You really got to love the sport. Right. But you have all of these things going on. The people are going to get their education at those colleges, and there's sports going on at those colleges. Why aren't the colleges, or why, didn't, why doesn't the NCAA come up with their game plan mm -hmm. to give to teachers, the future teachers, to give to the future coaches, the future guidance counselors, to say to them, this is what all the kids you're going to be teaching when you go out into the communities all over this country, you're going to be teaching them what we want you to, for, what we want you to have them know, all right? And the, the colleges don't do it. No, they ignore that. They don't do it. You're I, right. They they could basically it's called, it's almost like uh, I mean you got your your entire recruiting. The opportunity to recruit, right, from within your your own walls. If you fine tune those those utilities, set them out into the world, that benefits you and the community at the same time. No, absolutely, and 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 it's you have a captive audience. Exactly, you have the next generation of teachers, of counselors, of In coaches, your doors, yeah, and you're not giving them the information to go forth. To change the narrative with the kids. It, so, give me an example. It's, like, how would you, if you were the head of the NCAA? Right? All right. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. How true story. It? Yeah. it was about I'm going to say six, seven years ago. The Public School Athletic League uh, uh, here in New York, who I, who I do work with since I retired, uh, I do some. Um, people consider me an advocate 
student athlete advocate for boys and girls that play sports. Yep. Um, and the PSAL allowed me to uh, do a program called Game Plan for Success. I would go into schools and uh, either do it in an assembly or meet with individual teams or meet with parents if they got groups of parents. And I would, I would share with the parents something I had put together from all of my experience called the Game Plan for Success. Mm -hmm. And it was, Manny, just exactly what I was talking about, uh, a way to empower them to understand what's expected of them. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. I like it. Right. For those that are able to see, this is, we have an, a live example here. Yeah, that was... <laughs> I like it. It got a little, a little wet there. That's that right. But <clears throat> two of the main things. First of all, keep your child involved in sports and other activities because it keeps them out of trouble. Mm -hmm. And sports, to me, has always been a great teacher of teamwork, of discipline, learning how to sacrifice, learning how to cooperate with people, learning how to be responsible. Yep. All those things can that's, that's what happens when you're a member of a team, okay? But not everyone is going to be a professional baseball player, basketball player, football player, uh, girls playing football, uh, track. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, some, there's, there's less than 100 people that, that make, uh, you know, money running track after college. Right. Okay? I mean, it, it's ridiculous. So I came up with something uh, we called the numbers game. All right, focus on your education more than you're focusing on just basketball because that's going to carry you the furthest. Right. And why do we say this? All right, this is, uh, th these numbers come from the game plan that I put together, uh, and they need to be updated, but they're pretty, pretty accurate. This is back from 2016-ish. Yes, right? All right, okay. 2016, and, and uh, maybe it's gone up uh, a little bit. In boys' basketball in the United States... There are 541,054 high school basketball players wearing a high school jersey. Okay. For the girls, it was just under 430,000. Okay. You have a chance to be seen by college coaches. So somebody could offer you a scholarship. It might be a full scholarship, but more likelihood it's going to be a partial scholarship. Mm -hmm. And... Sometimes is Division Three. There's no scholarships for right. your sport. Right. It's all financial aid or academic scholarship. Mm -hmm. And so, do you want to get into college and play ball? Well, at that time, there was less than thirty-three thousand young men playing college basketball. Out of five hundred and forty thousand, right? Some odd, players. right? Right. Wow. And if you want to go back to the eighth grade, in the eighth grade. Add two million, so two million five hundred thousand would play in organized basketball. There wasn't even enough room in high school for the two million. I'm talking about wearing a high school yeah, uniform officially on the team. I'm yeah. not talking about the boys' club. Like <clears throat> right. I, I mentioned to you, uh, I played CYO, YMCA, PAL baseball. You're not counting that. I, I didn't make the baseball team. In in baseball, there was four hundred and eighty thousand uh, baseball players. Okay, but the college number, it just tells you. I called it the numbers game. 
you can focus all your energy on on getting into that, but you better have some academics because it's going to come down to college coaches want to get the best players, but they're hoping that that boy or young lady has good grades. Mm-hmm. There's an old thing we talked about. A coach has said to me, nobody wants to recruit a pain in the ass. Right. <laughs> okay? But you know what? They'll recruit them if they're a super player. I'm not here to tell you that that's not going to happen. And then if they recruit that pain in the butt, they're hoping this that he's really great. <laughs> and the way things are now, all right, and it started in, it started in the late 90s, uh, uh, with one and done. Yep. If you're a superstar basketball player, you look at this year's class with the NBA draft coming up. Yep. Uh, they know the draft order. The draft will be at the end of June. But like Zion Williamson, this guy R.J. Barrett, yep. Reddish, all from, from Duke, uh, they're going to go in the first round. But they played one year of college basketball. Right. They were one and done. Not everybody's one and done. No. Very few. Right, you're not one and done. I mean, it, it would be interesting to see what that is now that that's becoming, you know? and that's going to be actually it's going to go back to you know eligibility wise, go come come out of high school if you're well, there, ready. There's a lot of talk about that. There's a <laughs> lot. There's a lot of talk about that, and, and and we could get into that maybe a little bit, but um, you need to know what's expected, and like I said, not everybody. The numbers are against you, mm-hmm. and I. I have there was an old saying I worked with the NBA Players Association and I had a great guy named Charlie Grantham who was their vice president uh, and Charlie had a saying chase the chase the dream but make sure you catch an education along the way no one's here to deny anyone their dream right. but you better know that you got to play your butt off to to be, to be that great player but also get the best education you can take advantage of the opportunity that you get. I always love it when I see a, a guy that might have played a couple of years, one year or two years in college, go to the NBA, but he still goes back to get his degree. Yep. All right? Uh, guy that just retired, Dwayne, Dwayne Wade. Dwayne Wade, yeah. All right? Went, got back, went back and got his degree. Jared Jack, you know, not too long you know, ago, did the same at yeah, Georgia Tech. Yeah, lots, lots of guys do that. And yeah. those, those guys got the message. So... Uh, the game plans to success. Big part of it was the was the numbers game. Uh, How shocking was like when you you know showed this to these children or, or not children, oh, well, athletes and parents. One of the things, uh, one of the great things that happened to me when was when I was doing this. Uh, I got my I got my degree. Okay, Hunter College. Uh, at, uh, Hunter, mm-hmm. but I fell into. Uh, I fell into uh, an opportunity. I was I was doing counseling. I, I was never officially a guidance counselor in New York City because okay. something happened. I got my degree, but I had been doing volunteer stuff in the community. And I got together with uh, uh, a couple of guys, a great guy by the name of Ernie Morris. Uh, Ernie Morris was a Rucker pro, okay. uh, uh, a teacher. Went to one. He had he had come up on the Holcomb Rucker, yep. the legendary Holcomb Rucker that started the Rucker tournament, and Holcomb was very big on academics. Ernie I mean, told he was me, a teacher. yes, yeah. you know, uh, uh, actually he was a rec worker. Oh, sorry. All right. I mean, he he yeah. worked for the yeah, but he worked for, worked and he had the <laughs> recreation uh, yep. uh, programs. 
But he ran, he ran the, the Rucker tournament, and Ernie told me that you couldn't play unless he saw your report card. Mm-hmm. And then he was on your case if you weren't doing well. So he had a lot of connections with a lot of the traditional black colleges in the South. You know, we're talking now the late 50s, early mm-hmm. 60s. So he was sending kids to the South. Ernie Morris was one of those guys. Okay. I met Ernie. I left the junior high school on the Lower East Side, and I went back to Long Island City. There was a school in Long Island City called PS4, about four blocks from the projects. And I had heard about it, and it was interesting. What I had heard about it was a lot of the tough kids were going there. So I'm, well, what's this about? Well, they said, well, it's a 600 school. It was designated PS4, but the Board of Ed had a thing called 600 schools. Okay. And this was a terrible uh, moniker, moniker to put on the school, but it was called a SMED school. What do you mean SMED? <laughs> S-M-E-D. What's that mean? You're here because you're socially maladjusted and emotionally disturbed. So now that would not fly today. No. There would be lawsuits. Oh, forget it. You know, you know, there would be marches. Yeah. But at that time. That was the designation. That was the designation. Huh. Okay. I mean, they had, people know this, they, they had kids who were uh, mentally uh, deficient uh, and they were CRMD, children with retarded mental development. Mm-hmm. Those were the two big things, CRMD and SMED. And SMED. These kids were the tough kids in the schools, elementary school. They had discipline problems. They had problems at home. Mm-hmm. There were things going on that, you know, would overwhelm most kids. Right. But these kids came to, they came, they came all the time uh, to the school. Uh, you basically were taking them out of the, quote, regular school so that the regular teachers could teach without interference. Mm-hmm. We had them 12 to 15 in the class, and we were trying to get them, uh, and this was a school at the time that went from the 5th to the 8th grade. PS4. PS4, in Long Island City, on Crescent Street. Hmm. And I met Ernie Morris there. He was an educator? Uh, he was a, a teacher. Okay. And you talk about an all-star staff. We had a guy by the name of Jim Green, who had played for the Los Angeles Rams in football. Hmm. It was a black college All-American. Uh, we had another uh, black college uh, graduate basketball player, uh, Arnie, Arnie or Artie Glover? Al Glover, I'm sorry, Al Glover. Okay. Uh, a guy who led the country in scoring at St. Benedict's down in the South. Another uh, Hokum Rucker graduate, Bob McCullough. Okay? And got drafted by the Cincinnati Royals, but had the misfortune of getting drafted at the same time as Oscar Robinson. Yeah, I, All right? I, I saw that. So Bob... Uh, <laughs> Bob uh, went on to play in, in what was called at that time the, uh, the Continental League. CBA. All right, CBA. And then uh, Bob started a great program called Each One Teach One. We in, had his son on, on this show. Yeah. Marvin. Uh, okay. And, and uh, you know, Bob was a great guy. Ernie Morris was another Rucker pro. Uh, all these guys were teaching there. And a, and a so few other on. guys. You, I mean, you said it, but yeah. now it's, it's really clicking. So you had... You had a full profession, former professional football player. You had former professional NBA players, yourself, 
and I mean, just just that crew alone. Yeah. How did everyone just end up at PS4? It's it's interesting. I, I was talking to Ernie Morris. We've remained friends for, for lifetime friends. He's just a great guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just, he heard about it through somebody. Got it. You know? But was it and more like this is a, this place happens to be where they send all the tough kids. Let me, that's a challenge that I want to accept. Is that kind of, you know, that, you know what, that was, that didn't bother these guys because Ernie told me one time, this was like teaching me, Uh, you know, like these guys I'm talking about, they had gone through, they lived and survived the life that these kids were living now. Right. Right. Okay. So that was, I mean, Uh, that could have been a draw. That was like, I want to, yeah, I was in these shoes. And, and, uh, the place was run. I told people, you don't understand. This is a smed school. Yeah. It's being run like a private school. Oh. All right. Just picture kids coming in in the morning, the whistle blows, everybody lines up. You said the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're with your class. You sang the school song, which was Orville Wright Forever. It was called the Orville Wright School, one of the Wright brothers. Yep. So you sang Orville Wright Forever, uh, then you went off to class. And each teacher had those kids together, all right, for the whole year. Oh, there was no switching classes except for gym and shop. Okay. Okay, gym and shop. Uh, so you had to take the kids through the whole gamut of everything. And there were challenges every day because kids came in with attitude problems, kids came in. You, you knew if a kid who was great on Monday came in and put his head down on the desk first thing in the morning and went to sleep, something happened. Right. That's not normal. This normal. That's not the normal kid. Right. Uh, and it was interesting that the kids from, there were a lot of kids from Queensbridge Projects okay. in the school and from the Knight Center. And that was kind of my pass. Those kids knew me. Right. And it was like, that's Mr. Kosick. You Were know. you still doing the night program? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was still in the night center. Okay. So it was like, oh, that's Mr. Kosick. Yeah. Uh, he's a good guy. He's all right. Because Ernie Morris and the other guys, they didn't know me from Adam. Paint, yeah. You know, who's this white, long-haired guy? Right. You know, uh, who's coming in here? You know, because when I was talking, it's 1968, 69. I, actually, I got there in 69, 69, 70. So who is this guy? Yeah. You know, hippie-looking guy. Right. <laughs> All right? But wait a second, man. The kids know him. So they were kind of quiet around me, and I was quiet around them. I was never a big mouth. Right. You know? And the gradually, I respected them, you know, uh, and, 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 and we just hit it off. But that school, I was there from 69 till 75. Oh, wow. Uh, things started to change a little. One principal retired, new principal. The people don't remember. I think it was 70, maybe 74, 75. There was a fiscal crisis in New York. Mm. All right, maybe a little earlier. Uh, and a like lot of. On the verge of bankruptcy type of. Well, the city, crisis? oh, yeah, yeah. That was, okay. if you look up the, the, the famous headlines. The city was looking for a bailout from the federal government, uh, and uh, Gerald Ford was the uh, uh, president at that time. Right. And basically, the New York, I mean, the Daily News said uh, 
federal government tells New York City, drop dead. Oh, that was the headline. Shit. Like, you're not getting any money from us. <laughs> so there were a lot of cutbacks in schools and stuff. And uh, I guess they started to look over licenses with a fine-tooth comb and everything. Oh, okay. And uh, I forget what it was, but there was something with my license that was a little off. And seniority, too, was a big thing. Yep. <coughs> and I received a notice that I was being terminated. <laughs> All right. Just random. Yeah, random. Huh. But then it turned out if you worked in a 600 school, you couldn't be terminated because they really needed you. Because people weren't volunteering to, right. to, to teach them. Right, to the 600. Yeah, yeah, to the 600 schools. So uh, I got terminated one day and reinstated the next because <laughs> they sent me down with a letter. All right, fine. But no one told the people that do the payroll. Oh, so that one day of termination... <laughs> It took me two months to get back on the payroll. Wow. So, and you, st you still kept going to work? Oh, yeah. No, no, I was going to work, but I was going to get paid. Got it. Got but it. the checks were like... Delayed. Delayed. Then I got an emergency check. Mm -hmm. All right. But what also happened was interesting. Uh, the Vietnam War was still going on. Yep. I got a draft notice. Hey. I was... I, mean, <laughs> I, they, I guess they were looking with, with the... You know, uh, magnifying, magnifying glass. glass. <laughs> you know, who's eligible? Right. Oh, this guy's just became eligible. I got a draft notice, and I, I went and had to go down to Fort Hamilton, Brooklyn, for that, take a physical. Yep. Uh, now, I was going to appeal this because I was teaching in what was considered, uh, I guess, Title I or a tough school. Mm -hmm. So the board wrote a letter that they needed me. But I remember, the, I'll never forget this. And when I went down for the physical, I'm online. Now, I had started working at uh, the Summer Center in, I believe, 66 or 67. So this is nine years later. Mm -hmm. I'm online there in my boxer shorts, and I hear, Mr. Kosick, hmm. Mr. Kosick. And I look over, and it's guys who are now 19 years old that I had when they were 12 or 11, and they're there to get drafted. And I never forget this one kid, Nazam, Nazam Afzal, all right, good guy, and uh, I can't think of the other guy he was with, but my my heart dropped because I was a I was an anti-war guy. Yeah. All right. I knew how lucky I was not to have gone because I I had friends I grew up with that went. Uh, I lost a good friend, you know, a teammate yep. who I played ball with. Uh, and I had another friend who came back, and he said, you do whatever you can to stay out because they're not allowing us to win over there, mm -hmm. you know, because there was all the restrictions yeah. on bombing. You don't want to go. Anyway, I got, uh, did my physical and everything, and then uh, I, I did get the deferment, and then I lucked out because then the next draft lottery, I got a, I got a high number, so I was okay. Uh I believe Nizam got, uh, got killed over there, you know? And then uh, another guy from, it, it, it really, I, I'm, I'm, it name's on the tip of my tongue. I went to visit my father's grave. My father was a, a veteran of World War II, mm -hmm. and he was buried out at Calverton National Cemetery in Long Island. And I went, uh, just the name just came to me. I went to visit his grave uh, with my brother one time, and everything is flat, 
you know, they have plaques on the ground. Right. So my father's thing, like we cleaned it off. And I was just looking. One row over, I see a name. Randy Govantis was another kid that I had from the Summer Center. Now, how many guys are named Randy Govantis and right. it says Queens, New York? Right. And I found out later he was killed over there. Wow. So uh, things like that shake wow. you up, you know, because life's not fair. And uh, we're only here for whatever time we're here. Right. You don't know when you're going to go. So, you know, why not make the best of it? Yep, absolutely. You know, so I just, in my edu- in working with kids, I always try to, to get the kids to understand that I called it counseling by consequences. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm going to use that with my kids. <laughs> no, it's counseling by consequences. Here are the things that you do. Right. If you do these good things, all this good stuff is going to happen for you. Right. If you don't do these good things, yeah, the consequences. these are the consequences. And that's life. Yep. All right. How, how many, in your experience, right? Because, I mean, and I'm guilty of this probably just as much as you or anybody else, but like, you get people to come and talk to you, kind of basically give you the blueprint. Do these things, don't do these things, right, right? Right. In your experience, in the capacity of work that you've been doing, how many would you say percentage-wise have actually listened to some of the things that you've instructed them, not instructed, but advised them versus not? You know, uh, I noticed some of the kids at PS4, uh, I know some of them were killed. Mm. Uh, in the streets? Or? Yeah. yeah, yeah, in the streets. Uh, some of them have really rough lives. And then I've run into some of them that were successful. And those are fewer you know, and farther between. You know, I would love to say everyone. Yeah. But, I mean, I've had kids who I had at PS4 who were tough kids who I've seen being the conductor on, on the subway. Nice. You know, I got another kid, uh, Jeff Jennings, who's Jeff Jennings was a kid who had one of those personalities that you just loved. And it was like... How did this kid ever end up in 600 school? Mm. You know, he, he should be running something. Right. Everyone likes him, all right? Like he gets kids to do stuff together. Right. Well, he happens to have a very successful barbershop right across from Queensbridge Projects. Okay. All right? He's a great guy, all right? Uh, guys who I thought were really going to make it ended up having a drinking problem. You know, like, so how do you deal with that? Okay. Um, I was just watching. Now that you say that, I was just watching yesterday the uh, the documentary that they did on Kenny Anderson. Oh, Mr. Chibs. No, I know. I know, uh, I know Kenny very well. See, yeah. So they, I mean, that's what. And that's somebody who made it. Right. That's somebody who made it. And who was hung over a lot of times. You know, still was yeah. busting butt. But if I mean, Kenny. Uh, I mean, Kenny's should have been a Hall of Fame player. He was a. All star mm-hmm. several times in the NBA, mm-hmm. but imagine if he had, you know, controlled his addiction. He right. was a he was an alcoholic, yeah. addicted to alcohol. Yep, absolutely. Uh, but a good guy, good guy. If you were around Kenny, a good guy, yep. you know. But a couple of things happened. How I I got further along. Uh, I was Ernie Morris and I yep. formed a group with another couple other teachers I knew. The group was called City Streets Education for Life because we knew 
things weren't being done for these kids. Right. So we put together a packet of information, and we started to run our own workshops. Workshops. Okay. We did them at Marta Christie High School. If you go back in the archives of the Daily News, it was a great sports writer then, Bill Travers. And Travers uh, came to Marta Christie. He was, you know, the, the news used to cover high school sports. To quote Mech, the mecca of basketball was because people knew about it. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, and he came and covered that. And we would go. I remember one year, we 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 did something in Harlem one day. The next day, we were at Marta Christie for kids from Long Island City to come to, uh, and then the public school semifinals were going to be held PSAL at St. John's. Okay. So, now remember now, there's no computers, no yep. internet, nope. no social media at that time. It was the papers and word of mouth. Right. So you knew there was going to be a good crowd at St. John's. This was what year? Uh, I'm going to say... Late 70s? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it was the year that Adlai Stevenson upset Benjamin Franklin, mm -hmm. who had a bomb squad with uh, Walter Berry and other yeah, great players. Yeah, yeah. Yep. All right. So, no, no, no. This, this had to be, no. This had to be uh, early 80s. Okay. Early 80s. Okay. And let me get that right. Anyway. No, I think it, maybe it wasn't the Walter Berry team. It was another team. Uh, but anyway, uh, the semifinals were going to be at St. John's. I think it was the late 70s. And you're going to have a lot of basketball fans, parents, teams, players. Mm -hmm. So Ernie Morris and I and another guy, Pete Donoff from the Lower East Side, we said, what if we set up a table in the lobby of St. John's and just gave away our stuff. Because mm -hmm. I don't think we called it the game plan at that time. And our group was just uh, uh, City Streets. Yep. I, forget, I actually forget what we called it. So I contacted the PSAL. I did know somebody there, uh, John Gladding, who was the director of it at the time. Uh, and understand, this is what's crazy in New York City. Those guys that ran, ran the PSAL at the time, there might have been a half a dozen full-time workers. Hmm. And I don't know, I, don't, I really don't know how many other people what did other stuff. Yeah. But th at that time, there were like 200 high schools. They were running something that was bigger than the Olympics. Yeah. That happened every four years with a skeleton staff for 20-something sports. Think about that. Yeah. All the sports, basketball, bowling, there. football, gymnastics, you know, soccer, track, softball, tennis, volleyball. They're running these programs with a skeleton staff, okay? Uh, see, my thought was they should be getting this information out to the kids, mm -hmm. But it wasn't happening from from an organizational standpoint. Right. So I came to them with the information and said, we want to give this out. Let us do it. Right. So one of their more skeptical <clears throat> members, uh, who I won't name, 
I said, well, why do you want to do this? What's in it for you? Uh -huh. And it was like, we had never even thought about what, what's, in it, what's in it for us. Right. It was like, it's the right thing to do. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's needed. What are you getting from satisfaction that we're reaching out to some kids? So we set up a table in, in, uh, in, in the lobby of St. John's. And it was Ernie Morris, myself, Pete Donoff, uh, maybe a couple other guys. I'm sorry, I don't remember their names. And we interacted with parents, coaches. We probably had 800 handouts, four or five page handouts, you know. Uh, and we, would, we had not become an official not-for-profit at that time. Mm -hmm. So we- You just called yourself City Streets. Yeah, now Education for Life. City Streets, right. Education for Life. Right. And we, uh, we ran uh, beer, beer rackets, like if people know what a beer racket is, we, we had a party and and we had cold beer, right. and people paid money. Well, that went to our printing cost. A friend of mine opened up a disco in in the city, and he let us have the disco once on a weekday night. So we were, you know, st trying to get people to come to the fundraising. Yeah, that's how we that's how we did it. You hustled to uh, fundraise. Yeah, to that, that, you know, that's how we did it. And then one of our other hopes was we wanted to have enough money to maybe uh, give a little scholarship money to a kid to go to a private school. Nice. Because uh, at that time, that, that was starting to happen. There's a lot of good programs out there that uh, get talented inner-city kids, right. not necessarily athletes, and, and get them towards prep schools or other schools. Mm -hmm. We wanted to do something like that. But uh, a couple of things happened. Uh, one guy got Pete, not, Pete Donoff moved to California, and then at the time based on the work I was doing with City Streets, I applied for a fellowship. There was a program at Columbia University. Mm -hmm. And the program was called the Revson Foundation, Revson, Revson Fellowship for the Future of the City of New York. And they awarded uh, 10 fellows a year. And you received a, a, a stipend for $15,000, mm -hmm. which at the time was about Let's see, that's 1981. That was about the uh, equal to what the salary I was going to earn still teaching wow. uh, in 1980, 81. And um, I was fortunate enough to, because you got your stipend and then you could go to classes and take any classes in the discipline you wanted that would help what you were doing. At Columbia. At Columbia, okay? So I went. I made a presentation. I had to write an essay. It was a very short essay. Somebody said, keep it short and sweet. So mine was like two and a half pages. But it was based on my work in Queensbridge Projects, PS 111, and what we were trying to do with city streets. Right. And, my, and I was pointing out the problem. Why are these kids coming back from college and they're dropping out? And what's going on like mm -hmm. there's something something's missing right okay yeah they get this free ride and then they return yeah they're not ready you know they weren't ready for whatever reasons right so how can we change that narrative and uh i had in the back of my mind what dr roscoe c brown had said okay because that pushed me towards city streets right. with er with ernie morris and and the guys and uh so I got one of the scholarships. There was like 
200 people applied. There were 30 finalists. I had to go before a panel. Uh, I said my rosary uh, the night before. Held it nice and tight. I think my mother was lighting candles <laughs> at the my church. Used to do that too. My mother you know, does that too. Yeah, to this day. Was, she's, she's probably doing it right now. And she was, and she always had a rosary bead. So <laughs> I, I had an advantage, I think. But I was, it was, it was a very uh, rewarding thing to be. I was recognized as a Revson fellow. That's awesome. So what I did was, I, they said, "What do you want to study?" Well, I want to study, you know, what's going on in New York City with working with kids. Yeah. So I went to Teachers College, and, and uh, there was a great teacher there. Her name was Hope Jensen Lecter, and she taught a class, and it just, man, it would just hit me between the eyes. It was called Family, School, and Community. All right? Family, School, and Community. Mm -hmm. This is, my, this is my trifecta arena. Everything is there. Right. All the problems are there. How can I put those three things together to help fix it? Right. And then it became like, uh, so I did that. I took a thing on the history of the city of New York. Uh, but basically education, social work classes, all right, uh, and the toughest class I ever took <laughs> was a statistical class yeah. because I'd have to do surveys and get all the percentages together. Uh -huh. And being a uh, uh, not a math guy, right. and the teachers at Rice remember, I went to <laughs> summer school for algebra, trigonometry, and geometry. Those are you bad know, words in my neighborhood. Yeah, which I passed, which was one of the stupidest <laughs> things. When I think of the three summers I was in summer school, my friends had summer jobs or were lounging around. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> a little, little re re regretful. Yeah, but, but I, I managed to get through, uh, I think it was pass-fail. Okay. And I think the guy passed me because I worked so hard. And the other thing was I wasn't going for a degree. I had this fellowship. So, okay. But anyway, I, I, I took, here's what I did. Family, school, and community. Just picture this, and I, and all you, all you, community coaches and coaches and parents working out there with kids. Picture a triangle. Yep. All right. Three points. One point is the family. The other two points is a point for the school. There's a point for the community. In the middle of that triangle is your son, your daughter, your player, your student athlete. Okay, and here's how I looked at it. If a boy or girl ideally had solid family, good community ties, good stuff going on with the school, man, you're on the track for success. Mm -hmm. That's not reality. Right. Okay? Something's off. If you have two of the three, mm -hmm. you got a good chance mm -hmm. because your family's strong, you could be in a messed up community with all sorts of diversions and temptations and threats, yep. but your family's good and, and your school is good. So you got two out of three to overcome what's happening in the neighborhood. Right. Or your family could be messed up, but there's somebody in the community, some coach, some, some Holcomb Rucker, mm -hmm. some Ernie Morris, some Bob McCullough, some guy that is there, or some young lady who's there to anchor the kids. They're like saying, hold on to me, I'll get you through this. Right. And then you have the school. 
The school is good. So those two can overcome a tough family situation. Mm. It's not guaranteed. But your chances are But your greater. chances are increased. Right. You got two out of the three pulling you in the right direction. All right? But I've, not everybody, two out of three, there's still no guarantee. Tough, yeah. Still no guarantee. Okay? I saw a guy had the community, had the school, send them off to play for big house gains at Winston-Salem, yep. right around the team. Would have been on the with same. Te- would have been on the same team with Earl the Pearl Monroe. Wow. He was back in seven months. Couldn't get a straight answer as to what happened. It might have just been playing time. Mm-hmm. The Pearl was at his height. Maybe this guy thought he was going to come in, and I'm not going to embarrass his name, but. And Big House is no came, joke. Big, he came back. Earn every little bit with Big House. He came back. Right. And 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 other guys. And, but you'd hear the stories, the social life. Uh, when I first started, I first started helping kids. I tried to get some kids to go out to St. Mary of the Plains. <laughs> all right. Now here, and I'm thinking, it, all right, it was good for me. Right. But I'm not thinking. Right. At the time, wait a second. And these were usually. I'm sending black, black kids. Yeah, I'm right. sending. Now there were black kids out there. No, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm saying. But the, but uh, when I think back at it, there were very few in the college. The the black and we had a good some good football players out there. Some yeah. guys that uh, got got uh, free agent contracts for the NFL. Uh, we had Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks went on to play uh, in the ABA a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway. Uh, the social life out there, when, when I looked into it for blacks, was really the small black community in Dodge City, Kansas, okay. at St. Mary of the Plains. But I sent out three guys out there, okay? Uh, a couple of them honorable mention all-city players. Because the coach from that college, the basketball coach had come in, all right? And he had just, they, St. Mary's was hot at the time, because in 1968, we had a guy actually make the 68 Olympic team hmm with uh, Spencer Haywood. When Spencer okay. Haywood came out of University of Detroit and tore up the Olympics, we had a guy, <coughs> six eight white guy, Don D, who had actually been a Division I guy at St. Mary, uh, at St. Louis uh, University, but something happened and he dropped out for a couple of years and he was a mailman hmm. and the coach, coach John Schmiedler found him Brought him to St. Mary's. So that's an eligibility well, game. Yeah, we made it. We made it to the uh, state finals. We were one game away from going to the national playoffs, but uh, uh, Don D ended up getting drafted. <laughs> went to the NBA anyway. But the uh, the black players, uh, they went out there. Uh, they all came home. <laughs> <laughs> they and I and I was like, I messed up. Right. All right. They, and they, everyone loved them. This is the thing. I'd say, what happened? I don't know. They just decided not to come back. They were doing okay in school. I think two of them transferred their credits. I'm not sure what happened to, to Wally. Uh, uh, and this is after you kind of got that. That, that yeah, where know, I, thought I, I thought I knew. Right. I thought I had the answers. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm getting them out of the projects. Right. The community is not a that A coach great. wants them. Right. Because at the time... Nobody was recruiting these guys. Right. People don't understand that only the very, very best get the look. were getting the look, okay? 
And even at that time now, now we're talking when I started 1966, there weren't a lot of black players going to play at Southern white schools. Right. Okay? So it was like, wait a second, all right? Like Charlie Scott out of Harlem was the first player in, in the uh, uh, mid-60s, late-60s, that played North Carolina. Mm. I think he might have been the first black player in, in the uh, mm. ACC, at least at North Carolina. Right. But that all started to change because you had the civil rights movement going on at the time. You know, things, doors were opening up. Right. Those traditional black colleges, the Winston-Salem's, the North Carolina A&T's, uh, uh, Tennessee, there was, there was a school, Dick Barnett, Dr. Dick Barnett, who yep. played for the Knicks, the great Knicks teams yep. in the 60s, 70s. Uh, he played for, I think it was Tennessee something. State, maybe. They might have run, Tennessee State, they, they might have won like three straight NAIA yeah, national championships. Yeah. Because, and these guys could have played with anybody. Right. But, but the, the white, quote, white schools yeah. weren't recruiting them. <clears throat> All right? Uh, so a lot of things, a lot of things were changing. Fortunately, the two guys that came home made out, they, they did okay. You know, they're okay. They had good jobs and were making, I, I lost track you, of one Did you job. ever figure out, did you get a straight answer from them, what the lacking Yeah, yeah, was? yeah, it just wasn't for me. Okay, it was, fit. it was too, they, they, you know, you know, there wasn't enough black female yeah, yeah, yeah. students. They, they were, they was really a minority. There was, they didn't have any issues. Because everyone treated them fine. Yeah. Right. It's one thing. My four years at, at St. Mary's, I mean, we had black football players, black basketball players. And, and uh, I was fortunate that I grew up in a household where race wasn't an issue. Mm -hmm. Like my father volunteered at the boys club. You know, there was never, you know, uh, any issue about a, a black guy or, or, you know, I mean, my, my father did a lot right. for his liberty. He was a... You know, my father was a freaking uh, cleaner in school, <laughs> and he's taken his team out for a steak dinner wow. at the end of the season. You know, so I, I was fortunate that I grew up in that household. Right. But at the same time... Outside I, of your household, things yeah. are different. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, the Revson Fellowship that year, I did a survey uh, on New York City public schools. Mm -hmm. I sent out... In the area of 150 survey forms, I sent one to the girls' basketball varsity coach, the boys' varsity coach, the athletic director, and the AP of guidance. Now, people tell me that if you get 5 to 10% of your surveys back, you're going to have an accurate survey. I got back about 25%. All right? Wow. And it basically was saying, are you getting this service? Are you getting... And I, I wasn't trying to make the PSAL look bad. Right. I was trying to get them to see that this is... Here's some areas we got to look yeah, at. Yeah, we got to look at. So, I got the survey back, put all the information together. And at the time, I mentioned athletic directors. That was the wrong term to use. There were no athletic directors say, at I, that time. Uh -huh. At that time... These are high schools, right? Yes, the high schools, New York City high schools. At that time... The assistant principal of physical education was the had the role of athletic director in that he or she got all the eligibility 
applications together. The uh, medical stuff, which was the big thing. He got a medical, so he's cleared to play. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, And then they were the ape. They were the person that put together the gym classes. But you also had to monitor the teams. Okay. Uh, It was a lot of work. If you did your job correctly, it was a lot of work. Okay. And I, I don't know... If they would get, I don't think if you were assistant principal of phys ed, you were getting an assistant principal salary. You weren't getting extra money for the other stuff. Maybe right. a little if you were monitoring games after Probably school. Probably not worth. But then, I did my survey. Uh, I sent a copy to the new chancellor, uh, who at the time was a guy by name Anthony Alvarado. All right, and this was about eighty. 82, 83, by the time I put everything together. The chancellor of the school. Yeah, the school, Anthony Alvarado. Okay. And I sent it to John Gladding and the PSAO. Um, I didn't hear anything from Mr. Gladding. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, because I think they were looking at it like I was giving them more work. Right. I I was saying that we need more guidance. We need to get the information to the parents the kids from an earlier age, and I was just talking ninth grade. I should have been wow. talking. I was because high school. I'm doing yeah, high school. I should have been. I should have been talking middle school, sixth, seventh, and eighth. Or at that time, it was just called uh, junior high schools. Right. You know, you had elementary schools, and then kids started junior high school in the sixth grade mm-hmm. and went six, seven, eight. I should have been talking that. I wasn't. That was a mistake on my part. But uh, a light must have gone on with Anthony Alvarado. Because it, it and it kind of the, the stars were aligning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anthony Alvarado in 1984 forms a chancellor's task force on the PSAL and student athletes. Hmm. Okay, who's appointed as the head of the task force? Dr. Roscoe C. Brown. Ooh. Okay, did you make that recommendation? Who, somewhere? No, no, just... no, no. I no, believe me, I wow. was. And the you only said stars aligning. Well, That's a hell of a star. Well, <laughs> well, here's the interesting thing, and I, I understand how the board of ed, people in the board of ed can work. Um, I was invited by Anthony Alvarado to be on the task force. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it just came from him or if it was Dr. Brown, because I had run into Dr. Brown a couple of times. He knew what, of my efforts. Got it. So I was on the. I was going to be on the task force. Okay, uh, never got anything from John Gladding. I got something from, uh, the, at the time, the head of the city council, the woman who was a, a, a House of Representatives person uh, at the time on the Watergate hearings. Elizabeth Holtzman. Elizabeth Holtzman. I was going to say, that's uh, Liz- for my time. Uh, yeah, no, Elizabeth Holtzman, who still is a spokesperson on, on television. Anyway, uh, we were tasked with developing a plan to help the kids. Uh, so I'm like, I got the information. Right. All right. So it was a matter of putting great stuff together. And another guy you, you probably remember, if you remember the, in the South Bronx, there was a group, the Sports Foundation, Bob Williams, over on 138th Street. Scott Burt mentioned him. Yeah, Bob Williams was a great guy. Great guy, all right, not-for-profit, 
did, did a lot of stuff to promote kids. One of his great uh, workers, a guy by the name of Cecil Severs, mm. was the coach, girls coach over at Thurgood Marshall. Okay. Still coaching. Uh, great educator. Uh, he and I got along well. He was, he was uh, Bob Williams was on the committee. I was on the committee. Um, anyway, uh, we put things together. They came up with, they came up with the student athlete guide to get it out there. Um, but tragically, Anthony Alvarado, uh, I, I, I don't know if it happened in quick succession, but he got mixed up in a little impropriety uh, mm. and lost his job. And then he passed away oh, quickly man. after that. Wow. He wasn't around long. So the, the, the guy that they brought in to help run with the PSAL, uh, Angelo Aponte, was a good guy. But then I saw the politics. There was politics involved. And Angelo was from Staten Island. And he, I really believe he wanted to do the right thing. But to do the right thing, they were going to need a lot more funding, mm-hmm. you know. But they did create. Here's what they did do. They did come up with the position of athletic director. For the? PSAL. Okay. Now you could have a person picked. Appointed. In the school. Oh, okay. To be the athletic director. Got it. Now, so each school would have their own. Own athletic director. Gotcha. Solely to monitor PSAL sports. Right. Now, in the beginning... Many of the assistant principals took because they were going to get paid. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, But here's here's what's been a problem. The problem, and it's ongoing, not everyone's heart and mind is in the same place. Now we're up to over 300 high schools in New York City. That's inclusive of charters and all that? Yeah, thing? yeah. Okay. And, you know, and we're, we're pushing probably 350, mm-hmm. okay? Um, lots of inexperience. A lot of, lot, of, lot of young men, a lot of young women that might, and especially young men, oh, there's a job opening in basketball? Oh, yeah, I'd like to coach basketball. Yeah. Have you ever played? Have you, have you followed the game? Do you know? Do you know all the things that are involved? Right. Right. No. Right. Okay. Some yes. There, there's some great young coaches out there. Okay. There's some coaches that played high school ball, played college ball. Uh, I'm going to name two guys who I'm so happy to see them what they've become. All right. Uh, and and fortunately, we I haven't even mentioned ABCD camp. No, we're getting into that right. next. Okay. But. <laughs> These are guys who were great high school players, all city, all American, uh, had very good college careers, uh, had, a, had a wink from the NBA, hmm. but played more years, like seven, eight, nine, overseas. ten years overseas. Okay. Robert Phelps at a Nazareth high school in, in the uh, 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 late 80s, okay, went to Providence, mm-hmm. okay, uh, didn't have the career everyone thought, but had a super senior year. I think Providence won the Big East that year. Okay. Okay. Uh, Robert had a look, try out with the NBA, but had a great career overseas. Uh, he's now a coach 
at Bedford Academy in New York City. Okay. You couldn't ask for a finer coach, a finer man, a role model for the kids. Uh, I was hopeful that whoever you were yeah. going to name first was an alumni of this show. But yeah, twenty four seven. to do. Oh, Robert, <laughs> Robert is like the best. And then another player that played at All Hollows High School for John Carey. Yep, he's from Harlem. Uh, went to St. John's. Shawnell Scott. Ah. All right, big six ten guy. Okay. Played at St. John's. Uh, got drafted into the NBA, and I think by the Cleveland Cavaliers. And ended up, I'm going to say, a three- or four-year career uh, in the NBA. Got, got banged up a little bit, mm-hmm. but ended up playing overseas for about 10, 11 years. Wow. Now, here's guys, and they made some good money overseas. Both guys come back and become teachers. And I ran into Chanel about four or five years ago just by accident, okay? And he was coaching at this Millennium High School in Brooklyn. Uh, which is inside the old John Jay building in Park Slope. Okay. You couldn't ask for a better coach. Robert Phelps, a better coach, those guys. Uh, there's, there's a coach who I met through workshops. When I started doing workshops for the PSAL, there's a young guy on the Lower East Side at Pace High School. Mm-hmm. Little bitty school on the Lower East Side, uh, Nick Lee. Uh, if you go to his practices... <laughs> It's not much difference from his practices than a college practice. Organized, thorough, tough, the drills, unbelievable. Can't ask for anything right. more. Yeah, and he's and he's working he's working with Asian kids, uh, skinny little Arab kids, mm-hmm. some black kids, some Spanish kids. You see his teams play, oh. These guys are well coached. Mm. Now they they always make it to like the quarterfinals. They're on the verge of the semifinals, but they haven't they haven't busted through to that championship yet. And they're in the B they're in the B division. B division. Okay. All right. But his players his play some of his players go off to college, but his play you go there and everything is yes, Mister Kosick. Yeah, they're they're gentlemen. I love that. They know how to treat how they come over to you. They come over to you and introduce themselves. Nick Lee is Those like... Those are skills that go yeah, way beyond just Exactly, basketball. exactly, awesome. exactly. So there's guys like there's guys like that all, all over. A, a longtime guy at Frederick Douglass Academy, Pat Mangan. Mm-hmm. That school is, sets the example. You can't play on any teams at Frederick Douglass unless you have an 80 average. Wow. Can't play... And, and they compete. And like they it's compete. not just yeah. academically strong, yeah. but... Yeah, they've won the championship on the A level. They were on the A level. Okay. The highest level is double A. So there's guys out there doing it the right way, okay? There's far too many guys who just need to be nurtured more. There are some guys that shouldn't be coaching. I have a question for you because we had Chucky Martin on the show, Mm. and I asked him a very simple question, right? What happened to the the moniker of Mecca of basketball when it came to New York basketball, right? Yes, thank you. I feel like, I mean, this is obvious, right? Captain Obvious over here. It's, it's no longer that. Or, no. or at least that is not, when you say New York basketball, nobody calls it that anymore. From your perspective, and I'm not as familiar with the PSAL. Yeah. I'm more you know, with the CHSAA. We, but what do you think are the contributing factors toward that? All right. We talked a little bit about this on the phone. Um, Too much success 
hmm. in this sense. The competition back in the 50s and the 60s and I'm sure in the 40s, yep. all right, but I'm talking 50s, 60s. Uh, like I saw Connie Hawkins and Roger Brown their senior year okay. play. All of those guys, and then Billy Cunningham and the other players that were all over the city, come after the, after the basketball season. Those guys played in their communities. Mm. Bed-Stuy, Fort Greene. Webster, PAL, Bed- the Bronx. Yeah, well, Brownsville. Yep. They played on their community teams. At the time, Riverside Church was a team. Now, Riverside Church just had Riverside Church neighborhood kids. Mm. They got they would get crushed. Yep. Okay. There were no gauchos at the time. Okay. So I'm at a game where Queensbridge is playing some community center from Harlem. They're beating them pretty good at the halftime. All right. Now I had never heard of Joe Hammond. Ha. <laughs> I'm in I'm in the gym. And I'm saying, oh, man, the kids are playing good. This is good. And all of a sudden, I hear, Joe Hammond's here. There's, there's Joe Hammond. Jo- and I'm like, Joe Hammond? Who the hell is Joe Hammond? How old is Joe Hammond? Probably, I'm going to say 17, 18 wow, okay. at the time. This tall, lanky guy with, is at his afro come, comes in. He had his tank top uniform on. He had his silky, and there was no baggy shorts then. Uh, the guys wore like, they looked like bathing suits. Boom boom shorts, uh, we yeah. call them. <laughs> All right. Uh, he's got his shorts on, and he had this long black raincoat with his high tops and, and white socks that came up about five inches up his calf. Right. You know, and, and it wasn't ice cold or anything, but it was winter. Okay. So takes he's out. <laughs> he, he comes out. A trench coat on top of shorts. Yeah, long black <laughs> trench coat. This guy comes out, and I, I'm like, oh, what am I seeing? Right. It was a Be- spectacle. Between the legs, no three point line, two steps inside a half court, a foul line extended from the from the sideline, bank shot in, bing bing. He scored like. 30-somethings in the second half. Now, he's, there's legends about him doing that in the pro rucker. Right. I saw it at the high school level. Wow. Like 30 points, one half. In the half. So, wait, did he come late to the game? Oh, he was Is late. He was, oh, yeah, he wasn't wow. there. He wasn't there. It was like Joe Hammond's here. So, I was like, wow. afterwards, like, the guys the guys were a little down because they lost. They ended up losing maybe seven or eight points. But... I remember Kurt Shipman just saying, well, that's what Joe Hammond does to people, mm. you know. But now you talk about a guy with a misguided. Right. All right? right. I mean, he loved to gamble. He was making money, whatever he yep. was doing. Street stuff. You yeah. know, the marijuana, whatever. The Later addiction. on, everyone knows the legend that the, the Lakers were in town. They had him for a workout. They wanted to sign him. And... You know, money. You know, the NBA guys weren't making a lot of money right, then. Right. But it was like he said, "Nah." He was making twice or five times that on the street. On the street. But he still lit up the rucker. You know. That was his NBA. Yeah. You talk about misguided. But but here's what happened. You asked about what happened to the Mecca. Yeah. You had Queensbridge. You had Elmcore. You had Brownsville Rec. You had all these teams where guys went home and repped. They repped their community. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, it was in them. their heart. Yeah. 
All right? Queensbridge is playing Bayside, like whatever. Right. The Queensbridge is going here. That was your reputation. I remember once at the Knight Center, somebody brought in a team from Manhattan to play at the Knight Center. Well, I thought the games were fierce amongst the kids from the neighborhood. It was like, Boy. hey, because every, everybody that's watching is from Queensbridge. Right. We're repping Queensbridge, all right? And we got Glenn Berry from Astoria who will dunk on anybody. But it was like pride. Yeah. I mean, Queensbridge was like, welcome to Queensbridge. Right. But you ain't leaving with a W. Right, right, right. You know? <laughs> and it was like, and, and oh, man, oh, stuff like that. But here's what happened. All these communities, they played They played citywide basketball. They'd play up at the Rucker. Great competition. Game in, game out. In about 19, I'm going to say 1971. Might even been 69, but I think 71. Riverside Church, through their connections, very financially. Yeah, good you backing. Know, unbelievable backing church. Right. Somehow they make some connection with United States, and if you remember, or you probably you too young, but the United States was making, uh, trying to, the Cold War was going on with Russia and China. The United States wanted to uh, do better stuff with China and Russia. You know, we were sending, we sent the Harlem Globetrotters over for a tour of Russia. Peace mission. We were sending, we're sending the uh, New York Philharmonic over to play. They're sending over the, the, the Bolshoi, I'm saying it wrong, the Bolshoi uh, Ballet, oh, okay. come to America. Let's send a youth group of basketball players to play in Russia. Hope you enjoyed listening to part one of the Rich Cossack episode. Next Wednesday, Rich returns with part two, where he tells the stories of his time with ABCD Camp. He breaks down the history of the program and much, much more. Don't miss it. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend. Catch you next week. Peace.